Yehuda Geber here with um, another uh, Jewish History Soundbites podcast. And uh, it's interesting throughout history, both general and Jewish history, there's been many instances of people who were either underappreciated or not appreciated altogether for their talents or contribution to society. And only following their passing did society uh, reclaim them or make them famous or spread their uh, their contribution. And there are many, many examples throughout history. In American history, the classic example would probably be Abraham Lincoln, who in his time was opposed both by people in his own party, um, protested against within Congress, lambasted in the media, <clears throat> and definitely misunderstood in many ways. Uh, definitely not very popular in the South or in the um, or the way he managed the war. His own generals didn't didn't appreciate his his uh, management. And then uh, following his assassination, of course, the fact that it was an assassination contributed to that. Um, he became and is now well known as the greatest or the greatest after George Washington or the greatest ever um, American president, American people, uh, American leader, excuse me. And and that definitely defines his legacy till today. Um, but many writers, painters, artists, uh, religious figures in, in Christianity, the best example would probably be Santa Claus, right? St. Nicholas of somewhere in Italy of the 4th century wasn't all that popular in his lifetime, um, even though he did help children who were poor and give them financial support. And then over the past uh, 2,000 years or so, his uh, memories become into Santa Claus, right? And definitely much more of a cultural icon than even a religious icon. So here you have it. That's also would be a, a somewhat extreme example of this uh, phenomenon. Lahavdil, in the Jewish world, we have an aphorism that says, Achri mais kedoshim. Following their death, they become Kaddish, they become holy. And there's definitely many, many examples throughout Jewish history of people who were either opposed or just simply ignored, or even if they weren't ignored, but underappreciated during their lifetime, and they only achieved the fame that their destiny, you know, that they, that they deserved uh, following their deaths. And a good example of that would be Rabbeinu Yaakov Yosef, the first and only chief rabbi of New York City, the great Vilna Magid, who was brought into New York City to become the rabbi and uh, didn't was not, not appreciated at all. They they didn't like the way he was running the kashras and trying to uh, restore order to the butchers and the shaykhtim union in New York. And they really made him suffer and it probably contributed to uh, the, the suffering that he, that he uh, experienced during his attempts uh, to rectify the situation in New York City probably contributed to his untimely death when he was only in his early 50s in 1902, which is really a story in itself. But what's important in our context is, is that with his passing itself, it didn't take long, a long time. It was actually with his funeral itself. His funeral had a massive turnout and many long has spayed him and people asked for forgiveness and they made a huge tombstone and it became in recent years a 
place of pilgrimage. People go daven there now. And uh, subsequent uh, history has given him more justice than he ever uh, earned in his own lifetime. Uh, in a more recent history, we had an interesting um, story with the great speaker and mashpia, uh, Reb Shimshin Pincus, who in his lifetime was, was quite well known as a speaker. He wasn't definitely not an unknown person, very dynamic and charismatic figure. And, uh, but he was never achieved the popularity that he did afterwards. And unfortunately, uh, he died in a very tragic car accident. And while in his own lifetime, his influence was somewhat limited, um, he was even opposed by no less a personage than Rav Shach, who uh, spoke uh, against his, uh, his style and his message to a certain extent. And following his passing, his, in those days, I remember it was cassettes that they would sell. Now it's been digitized, obviously, but his speeches are immensely popular. And um, tens of svarim have been compiled from his writings, from his oral speeches, and they're bestsellers. Everyone's buying them and learning them and translating them into various different languages. And he really, really achieved an amazing amount of influence and fame following his tragic passing that he never had in his lifetime. So if we want to think of the best example of this phenomenon of Achrei Ma'iz Kedayshim, really the most uh, extreme example is the Ramchal, Reb Moshe Chaim Lutzato, the great Italian rabbi of the 18th century. And he, um, it was his yard site just uh, the other day, two days ago, and therefore it's apropos that we talk about him a little bit in this context. And he in his own lifetime, you know, was a near-daf, he was chased, he was misunderstood, and he was, there was a lot of suspicions around him. And then in subsequent years, the influence, the magnitude of his influence is absolutely incredible, which we'll get to as well, what his influence is in the Jewish world till today. So he is born in 1707 in Padua in Italy, northern Italy, not far from Venice. And he... Um, receives a both a a Torah education, a classical Torah education. He is very quick, very brilliant, very smart, maybe a genius. He learns Gemara, Poiskim. Uh, at a very young age, he becomes quite proficient. He gets smicha by the time he's 19. He learns and is exposed to Kabbalah at a very young age. Already from the age of 14, he's quite proficient in the Zayar and the Kabbalah of the Arizal. Um... He, he's already writing at a young age in all areas. He is exposed to secular knowledge also at the same time. And he, there's even a source, uh, a claim that says that he attended classes at the local university in, in where he lived and uh, definitely was proficient in languages. He knew Italian, French, Latin, Greek. Um, he studied science, um, literature of the time, and he was really, really, you know, uh, knew it all. And um, he started becoming part of a Chabura of Kabbalah, a group called the Mavakshe Hashem, right there in Italy. Um, and they delved into the secrets of Kabbalah. They also dabbled in practical Kabbalah, and we have to understand the context of the time. The early 1700s is in the post site Svi era. The great Shabbat Shalom debacle, which is a short topic in itself, probably a series of, to- of of podcasts in itself for another time. 
But Yishab uh, Tzvi was the great and uh, infamous false Mashiach. And um, in 1666, which is, you know, about 40 years before the Ramchal is born, he converts to Islam. And the movement does not die with his conversion to Islam. And it does not die with his death in exile in Montenegro in 10 years later. Uh, in 1676, and yet the movement still lingers on, and there's these remnants of Shapsay Tzvi that pop up here and there, both in Saloniki and in Izmir in Turkey, where he himself was from, the, the Shapsay Tzvi, and then later on in Eastern Europe with the Frankist movement, Jacob Frank, which is also a topic in itself, and um, there's a lot of suspicions, and there's a lot of um, backlash because of this whole, this whole situation, and therefore, the Ramchal, who's dabbling in Kabbalah, who's doing practical Kabbalah, who's doing all kinds of shvuas of malachim and using names and shemais and kameas and writing. And he also, when he's 19 years old, again, this is quite young when all this happens, he has a revelation of a magid, um, a, a, a mystical revelation of a magid, which starts to teach him secrets of Kabbalah, and he starts to spread it, and he starts to talk about it. And this... Um, raises a lot of opposition to him, especially of one Reb Moshe Chagiz, who was known for his opposition of post-Shabsai Tzvi elements in Europe in the early 1700s, early 18th century, in the post-Shabsai Tzvi era. And he goes full out against um, the Ramchal, and he instigates the Rabbonim of, of Venice to... to um, to you know, bring the Ramchal to some, some sort of a trial where he is forced to hide and lock away his manuscripts, all the texts of his Kabbalistic writings. He has to swear that he will no longer write Kabbalistic writings. And he has to make a commitment not to make use the practical Kabbalah in the way he's been doing so until now, to make Shavuos and Shemus and write Kameas and all that stuff. The Ramchal sees himself as having, having been forced into this situation, and he does not feel obligated to it, but he does respect it for a period of time. He starts writing all types of others from He writes on philosophy. Again, he's brilliant and broad-minded. He writes poetry. He write, he's a playwright. He writes plays. Even from before, um, when he was younger, when he was 17, he writes his first play. Um, many see them as regular plays, influenced by Italian literature of the time. And others see within them hints to secrets in Kabbalah, very mystical, subliminal meanings in these plays, in this poetry, a lot of Jewish themes for sure. And he has a wide, wide range of writings. He's writing Sfarim, he's writing all kinds of things. And he writes a Sefer that does dabble in Kabbalistic ideas. He gets permission from his Rebbeim, and he goes ahead to publish it in Amsterdam. But along the way, he stopped in Frankfurt, Again, under the influence of this Rabbi Moshe Chagiz and the Rav of Frankfurt, Rebank of Poppers, and to get, because of this Rabbi Moshe Chagiz, they accused him of the Sefer breaking his Shavua, breaking what he swore to the Besden in Venice several years before. Um, um, this is now already 1735. He's, he's, uh, he's almost 30 years old. He's 28 years old, and he had made this, this Shavua about five years earlier, and they accuse him of breaking it, and he has to prove that he didn't, and he attempts to do so, but it's not accepted. They seize his manuscripts and writings. Some of them are burned, some of them are hidden away. Almost none of them survived, 
um, the whole Pirish on the Zayhar that he had completely destroyed and lost because of the accusations. They, they again warn him again and they again censure him that he should not be spreading this and they accuse him of these post sites to the elements within, within his writings and works. He continues on to Amsterdam and he finds um, a profession as a diamond cutter. He, it's the center of commerce, Amsterdam. He's able to find a job. He becomes a diamond cutter. That's how he makes a living. He's already married with a child and he has to support his family. He keeps in touch with his Talmidim from the Kabbalah Chabura back in Italy. He has supporters, he has his friends, he has Talmidim, he has people who follow him, and he definitely keeps in touch with them, teaching Kabbalah. And while he's in Amsterdam, he writes his two most famous form. He also publishes it at the time, in his own lifetime, Mesilas um, Yesharim and Derech Hashem, which... According to some, even do contain some Kabbalistic or mystical elements therein. And, he, and he, um, he spends quite a bit of time there. In 1743, he's now 36 years old, he decides to move to Eretz Yisrael. He moves to Akko, he settles down in Akko, there was a Jewish community there at the time. And he, shortly thereafter, we don't know if it was a year later, or two years later, or three years later, um, possibly it was three years later, making him almost 40 years old when he died in 1746. And he passes on during a plague, which was quite common at the time. Plagues were devastating. Modern medicine had no way of dealing with it. And he, his wife, and his child tragically die in this plague. You know, Jews in Akko were not bo- buried in Akko because of, of um, doubt as to the, where the borders of Eretz Yisrael end, and Akko might be outside the borders of Eretz Yisrael, so therefore Jews of Akko were always buried in a Jewish cemetery in a nearby settlement called Kfar, Kfar um, Yasif, which today is an Arab village. Um, there is some sort of legend. Now, we do tours up to Tveria, and when he asked the, recently in the tour to Tveria, the family that I was accompanying, I bring them to Kivrit Sadiqim and Tveria, Tzfas, all the different Kivrei Tzadikim from different eras, very exciting stories from all over, and we really encounter our past on those tours up north. So they say we're going to go to Rabbi Akiva and the Ramchal's Kaver, which are next to each other in Tveria, and I told them we could definitely go to Rabbi Akiva and we could go to the memorial to the Ramchal in Tveria, but we definitely are not going to be going to the Ramchal's Kaver in Tveria because he's not buried there. He's buried in Kfar Yasif. And we're not going there because it's in our village today. It's complicated to get into, which is definitely why um, we're, we we're definitely have a push to believe that it should be in Tveria because no one has any interest in going into Kfar Yasif and it's much easier and more accessible to get into Tveria. So that's definitely part of it. Now, actually in Tveria, we have the, also the Shla Kaddish, which is a story in itself about Kabbalah and about um, mystical traditions, the Rav of Frankfurt, and in, in the recent years, he's become even more popular during this season as well, because on Arab Reish Chedish Sivan, there's a zgula attributed to him in recent years, which has become popular in regards to Chinuch Habana. So we got a lot of Tveria stuff going on these days. We have the Ramchal, who's not really buried in Tveria, and we have the Shlach Kaddish, who is buried there, but for some reason there's this zgula attributed to him in recent times. Now, he, he dies there, Quite in seclusion, um, there is a shul in Akko that, that allegedly he davened in, which is still around, 
Um, they even have a Sefer Torah, which they claim is from his time. It's not clear if it actually is. It's, it's an interesting Sefer Torah. It's written on deer skin, not on cow skin. Very, very thick and tough skin with a reddish color. Very interesting. But I'm not sure how related it is to the Ramchal himself. But what's very interesting is the influence that the Ramchal had. He dies quite alone, almost an unknown in Eretz Yisrael at that time, having been chased around, not understood, been falsely accused of being a follower of Shabzai Tzvi. And then he's resurrected, in, uh, in, and his influence is felt on no less than six major movements of modern times. Absolutely incredible influence. First one, we'll go through all six. First one is Hasidus. Hasidus is the least um, outspoken of. Certain Rebbe's, Kamarna for instance, they actually spoke that it's not influenced and Hasidus is different and they spoke against the connection between the Ramchal and Hasidus. But others, especially the Magad of Mezrich himself, um, the Valshemtiv Bepashtis also, um, who lived at the same time as the Ramchal, he was actually alive during the same time and was around when this and his farm were published. They, uh, um, and uh, and later, later, great leaders of Hasidus were heavily influenced by both the Kabbalah of the Ramchal, the Avedis Hashem of the Ramchal, and one of the Sfarim I saw that he's considered the Hasidus before the Hasidus, together with great people like the Shlach Kaddish, like the Maral, like the Arachayim HaKaddish, the Ramchal is up there with the pre-Bal Shem Tov Hasidus. That's the one, one movement that he majorly influenced. The second one is the Misnagdim, ironically, the Vilna Gain was a tremendous supporter of the Ramchal, also somewhat overlapped in his years, and he said that the Mesil Zisharim and other Svarim were written with Ruach HaKadosh, and he publicly supported the derech of the Kabbalah of the Ramchal. The Ramgain was a tremendous Kabbalist in Makubal, and he, he said tremendous things about the Mesil Zisharim, and the Talmidim, the students of the Vilna Gain, were definitely followers of the Ramchal and were influenced by him in their writings and in the Torah of the Vilna Gain and his students. The third group, interestingly enough, was the Haskalah movement. The Maskilim were heavily influenced by the Ramchal. His writings, his plays, his poetry, his style of writing, his, his uh, knowledge of the sciences and languages were all something that the Haskalah admired and looked up to. They called him the father of modern Hebrew literature, and his Hebrew writing style influenced a lot of the great Maskilim writers. Even Avraham Mapu, the one who wrote the first Hebrew novel, Avas Tzion, Yehudaleib Gordon, Adam Akayin, even Chaim Nachman Bialik described his influence on the Haskalah movement, the great Hebrew poet, and the everlasting influence that his writings and plays and poetry had on the Haskalah. The fourth group that had the had influence one was Makubalim group the the schools of Kabbalah, the Zayhar and then the Ariz Kabbalah were the major influences and the Ramchal was seen as someone who was elaborating on the Arizal's Kabbalah as explaining it, as describing it, as giving it much more description and making it more real and alive with a whole new explanations and new worlds in Kabbalistic and mystical meanings. The fifth and probably the most important of all the movements that he influenced, and probably the most famous of the ones that he influenced, was the Musr movement. Rabbi Yisrael Salanta described the Mesil Sisharim as the most basic Musr Sefer to be used in the movement that he wants. The Derech and Avaydis Hashem that he wanted to use, that he wanted it to be influenced, and it became the basic. Even Derech Hashem and Das Tavunas, Rabbi Yerucham Hashem, countless times 
Rebbechamavavitz from the Mir quotes from Derech Hashem Adastfunis and throughout his Shmuzin and his writings, as did other Bali Musr of Dessler and others. But for sure, the Masil Zesharim became the most basic safer of the Musr movement and was accepted and revived and very often published by the great Bali Musr and it became a cornerstone of the movement. Last and most interesting, ironically, that he influenced was religious Zionism. Rav Kook was a major uh, student of the Ramchal. He expounded on his forum. He, he saw the underpinnings of the Messianism and the Kabbalistic uh, underpinnings of his uh, um, return to Zion um, of as, as the beginning of the Geula. He saw that in the Ramchal, the writings of the Ramchal. He elaborates on it in many places, so much so that he once said to one of his closest students, Rav Hutner, um, Rabbi Yitzchak Hutner, when he was in the Slabatkin, he became very close with Rav Kook. He once said to Rav Hutner that I feel that I am a Gilgul of the Ramchal. It's an incredible statement. And he definitely influenced religious Zionism until today. In recent times, the Ramchal has become even more popular. Rav Chaim Friedlander took an initiative of his Rebbe, Rav Dessler, to publish many of the Sfarim of the Ramchal, which had been unpublished. He wrote footnotes and references, and then other people took up the work and his influence just becomes greater and greater till this very day. This was a podcast by Yehuda Geber. You can email me at ygebss at gmail.com for more, uh, to learn more tours, to see and hear about these great people and places. Subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. Don't miss an episode of our podcast. If you enjoy, give a good rating and share it with your friends and family. You can follow us on Twitter at J Soundbites, and we hope you enjoy.